Okay. Uh, my name is Merrick Garland. I'm a judge on the D.C. Circuit. I'll be your moderator today. Today we have, uh, we're going to discuss the independence of federal prosecutors, and we're going to do this in three dimensions. The relationship between the White House and Maine Justice, the relationship between Maine Justice and the United States Attorney's Offices, and the relationship between, between all of those and uh, the Congress. We're going to begin with a panel discussion, and we'll save the last 30 minutes or so for questions. We have an extremely knowledgeable and interesting panel for you. And the members starting at the left are John Yu. Uh, professor Yu is a professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley. At the time of the September 11th attacks, John was a deputy assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel, the Department of Justice. He previously served as the general counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee under Chairman Orrin Hatch. And he served as a law clerk for my colleague, Judge Lawrence Silberman of the D.C. Circuit and Justice Clarence Thomas of the Supreme Court. Next to him is Jamie Gorelick. Jamie's a partner at the Washington law firm of Wilmer Hale. She was a member of the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks on the United States. From 1997 to 2000, she was vice chair of Fannie Mae. Jamie was the deputy attorney general in the Clinton administration, and she was also the general counsel of the Department of Defense. Next is Andy McCarthy. Andy directs the Center for Law and Counterterrorism at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. For 18 years, Andy served as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, where he led the prosecution of the Sheikh Omar Abdelrahman and 11 others in the connection with the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Following the 9-11 attacks, Andy supervised the office's command post near Ground Zero in New York City. And I think I can say without contradiction that Andy is the only person in this room who was once a Deputy United States Marshal in the Witness Protection Program. I want to be clear, he himself was not in the Witness Protection Program. At least we don't, you know, we don't know, actually. Right. And finally, on the right is Bob Barr. Bob is the President and CEO of Liberty Strategies, LLC, a public policy consulting firm. Bob also occupies the 21st Century Liberties Chair for Freedom and Privacy at the American Conservative Union, and he serves on the Libertarian Party's National Committee. From 1995 to 2003, Bob was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, where he represented the 7th District of Georgia. And he was, at that time, a senior member of the House Judiciary Committee and vice chair of the Government Reform Committee. This uh, panel on the independence of federal prosecutors is not intended to be a referendum on any particular president, any particular attorney general, or any particular U.S. attorney. The issues that we're going to discuss are ones that have been discussed for many years and we expect will be discussed for many more. For that reason, the questions that I'm going to ask are going to be either hypothetical or historical. And I'd be grateful if when we throw this thing open to questions, you try, uh, the questioners try to put their questions in that form. Um, we'll try to save uh, 20 uh, to 30 minutes at the end for questions. So here is my first hypothetical question, which I hope that most of the members of the panel are hearing for the first time. i got to listen to the whole buildup, okay? Suppose that the president appoints his friend, a former judge, an advisor from his home state as the attorney general. Suppose that a public interest group then criticizes the Justice Department as being, quote, heavily politicized, close quote, and claims that the Attorney General has not, quote, 
sorted out the distinction between being the president's lawyer and the people's lawyer. Close quote. Suppose that some time later, a member of Congress from the president's party calls the White House and the Justice Department to request that, that, that a U.S. attorney in his hometown be removed. Suppose that the White House eventually tells the member of Congress that it will, quote, expedite, close quote, the dismissal of that U.S. attorney, tells the Justice Department to do just that, and the Justice Department then terminates the U.S. attorney. And suppose that the U.S. attorney then calls a press conference and says, quote, a call from a congressman clearly expedited my removal, close quote. All right, from that little bit of laughter before, I get the impression that you realize this is not a hypothetical. You're right, it's a real case. So I'm going to ask my questions using the real players' names. In this real case, which took place in 1977, did President Jimmy Carter do anything wrong when he had called Attorney General and former Judge Griffin Bell and asked him to expedite the dismissal of Philadelphia U.S. Attorney David Marston at the request of Pennsylvania Representative Joshua Eilberg, who was at the time under investigation by Marston. Former Assistant U.S. Attorney Andy, what do you say? what wrong means. Um, if, if the question is, did he do anything legally wrong? I think the answer to that is clearly no. Um, the president can remove United States attorneys and cause the uh, chain of events to uh, unfold where United States attorneys would be removed uh, for any reason or no reason. Uh, so I think clearly, legally, uh, there shouldn't be an issue. I, I take the fact pattern as it was described uh, and did not hear anything to suggest that uh, there was an obstruction going on in connection with any particular case uh, that was under litigation, that it was simply the removal of uh, a United States attorney. Now, wrong uh, is not just a legal concept. It's, a, it's you know, got a lot of other elements to it, and part of that is political. And I think under the circumstances that Judge Garland described, that might be an incredibly stupid way to go about replacing United States attorneys. And I would think that an administration who did that uh, would have to take a political hit for it. And that's the way it's supposed to work in our system. The ultimate check is supposed to be uh, the public at the ballot box. So I don't want to be misunderstood as saying that I didn't hear anything that was wrong, uh, but I didn't hear anything that was either a crime or something that I think is legally uh, redressable. I'm going to add some more facts, but before I do, Bob, it looks like you were ready to jump in, are you? Well, uh, you know, rel relying for the impartial and appropriate administration of justice uh, to just the ballot boxes, I don't think the way most of us as uh, Federalist attorneys uh, would like to see the system operate. Some things in our political system, in a very general sense, certainly are appropriately left to the ballot box, but uh, the uh, swift and impartial administration of justice is not uh, one of those uh, factors of our society uh, that ought to be left just to the ballot box. Uh, this is an area that uh, certainly, either hypothetically or in real life, uh, Congress has an appropriate uh, role, uh, responsibility uh, to look into, to inquire as to whether or not there were improper uh, motivations 
uh, with regard to the uh, request from the White House. Uh, obstruction of justice uh, is a very serious offense. Uh, it is one that falls within the appropriate uh, oversight uh, role of the Congress in addition to uh, federal prosecutors. Uh, the answer to the question ultimately whether or not there is something wrong here clearly is, is yes. As, uh, as Andy said, whether it is in fact legally wrong, that is uh, criminal, possibly criminal, uh, ought to be something that uh, all of us, if we were a part of or around at the time that uh, that uh, fact pattern occurred, uh, should demand uh, a full uh, and sifting inquiry by the Congress and by the Department of Justice. Uh, one would uh, have hoped that the pressure from the White House, as illustrated in the uh, hypothetical, uh, would have been uh, resisted uh, very, very uh, quickly very thoroughly and very consistently by the Attorney General. Right, so you raised two issues. Is there an obstruction problem and is there a political problem? Now, before I get to the other two members of the panel, let me add two other facts. There was, in fact, the investigation that Bob's referring to, the Office of Professional Responsibility did, and uh, determined that President Carter did not know that Representative Eilberg was under investigation by Marston at the time. Um, does that make any difference to you? Well, With it, respect it, to what the President did. I'll leave aside for the mo just for the moment what the Justice Department did. That, that, that certainly would be uh, a relevant part of the inquiry and certainly would uh, be relevant to the ultimate answer to your question. Uh, one, I think, would want to go a little bit further than simply leave it up to OPR to investigate its own. Uh, we don't know uh, from the hypothetical whether Congress, uh, whether the Judiciary Committee in either House uh, looked into this as part of its oversight responsibility. Uh, we don't know whether or not there, uh, in fact, was uh, any, uh, any other uh, follow-up uh, with regard to what seems to be a cursory conclusion that, there was, uh, that the President uh, did not know. Uh, certainly, a, to me, uh, knowing that particular White House, knowing the, uh, the attention to detail by that particular President, uh, that conclusion would strike me as one that certainly would, uh, would require a little further investigation. Okay. Andy, on the political point, does it matter to you that Representative Mar on the political question, or instead of saying political, which is small p, on the appearance question, does it matter that, that um, a U.S. Attorney Marston was an appointee of the previous president, that is President Nixon, and that this all took place during the very first year of the new administration? No, I, 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 don't, I don't think that that matters. I mean, in the sense that um, this is as far as I'm concerned, principally a political problem, um, sure, every fact that goes to the calculus of whether it was good judgment or bad judgment um, factors in. But in terms of the, the strict legal question about whether there's a legal problem here or not, uh, I, I don't think it does. Uh, and, you know, I, I hear what Bob is saying about uh, OPR and, uh, you know, investigating the department, investigating its own. But... You know, there are competing evils here. This is one of these situations where no matter which way you come out or which way you structure it to investigate it, there, there's going to be something undesirable in the result. Uh, you can have independent prosecutors look at this, uh, but I think our experience now, uh, and this is decades' worth of experience, uh, is that there's a significant downside to that. Uh, and in many ways, I think uh, it's, it's better no matter how much downside there is, 
to have OPR do investigations like that rather than go to this really awful, I think, procedure of having uh, somebody independent of the Justice Department do it. Jamie, let me ask you to respond to what you've heard, and let me add one more question. Did Attorney General Bell do anything wrong when he took President Carter's call after, uh, he, after, he, after he learned what the subject was going to be? So the, the, the knowledge of the President and the knowledge of the Department of Justice uh, in the person of the Attorney General about whether there was an investigation pending is critical here. And the role of the Attorney General should be to buffer from any kind of political pressure the due processes of uh, individual prosecutors and those who are developing cases. So it really is unacceptable that a president should be making a decision like this in the absence of knowing whether he is actually affecting an investigation that is ongoing. So that's one comment I would have. The second is that uh, it does matter that, the, uh, that Marsden was of the opposite party and presumably at some point was to be replaced. Be there, there, and th this explains why presidents uh, now uh, generally come in and say, uh, this is a new administration and I expect to appoint all new U.S. attorneys or at least take the resignations and decide individually so that you have uh, everyone resigning so that you don't have to individually pick out people uh, for replacement at some particular point or another because every time you do that on an individualized basis, you raise the question of whether they've got something going on within their domain that could be viewed as uh, an investigation that you are uh, you are influencing. And I right, think on, on that question, let me yeah. ask. So does it matter, again, as, a, yeah. as the facts, that Judge Bell actually sent a team of career prosecutors to Philadelphia to talk with the other people in the U.S. Attorney's Office to determine whether removing Marsden would have any consequence to the Eilberg investigation? Yes. I mean, the fundamental question uh, is, should this investigation, uh, uh, is this investigation being handled uh, as it ordinarily would? So you, you want to make sure that your prosecutors are indeed being buffered. So that does matter. Then you have the other question of sort of a message being sent more broadly. When you fire a U.S. attorney for uh, 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 failure to bring a case against someone in the opposite party or for bringing a case against someone in your party, you are um, you're sending a message. So there are two aspects of it. But absolutely, uh, the, the attorney general uh, taking steps to make sure that the investigation proceeded uh, or would proceed as it should uh, was the right thing to do. John, I'll let you back clean up on this hypothetical and respond to any of the others well, that you want. Uh, first, um, I was worried you're going to raise this case in the interest of full disclosure. I grew up in Philadelphia, and in fact, I hope you're the only one who knew the surprise daughter. ending to my hypothetical. I, 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 I dated Marston's daughter, so I know the whole story. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yet another scandal I'm involved with. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the only reason I disclose it is there's someone else here from Philadelphia I went to high school with and knows. You couldn't have been us. that old at the time of this scandal. Yeah. Well, you never know how I get my influence in various ways. Um, so I know the whole story, you know, backwards and forwards, and so just to. I, I am biased in favor of Marston by having to be <laughs> out, of, out, of, out of long time attachment. But um, it seems to me actually that uh, I, I take Jamie's point about there being a buffer, 
uh, between the sort of political operations of the government and the, the sort of civil service. I would just point out that's not really required by the constitutional design. And I think what she's saying is it makes very good sense as a matter of policy judgment about how you might want to run the Justice Department. But if you go back and look at the beginning you know, of our country, presidents used to directly intervene in the decisions of prosecutors all the time. So uh, President Washington um, overruled the U.S. attorney in Philadelphia, actually, again, when he wanted to prosecute people who were involved in the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, President, President Jefferson directed the President prosecution directed of the Aaron Burr. Right. In, in getting involved with decisions with the U.S. attorney about Unfortunately, it was Justice, Justice Marshall who was going to try the case. They were from yeah. different parties. <laughs> I think Jefferson wanted to outlawyer Marshall. And Jefferson used to give directions to the U.S. attorney in the Aaron Burr case about what types of evidence to introduce yeah. and which documents to withhold or not. So I think, you know, there was a different model. And Jefferson also argue, uh, told all U.S. attorneys not to prosecute anyone for Alien and Sedition Act mm -hmm. violations because he thought the law was unconstitutional, which I think was correct. But so you had, once upon a time in our system, under the Constitution, pre presidents very directly intervening with prosecutorial decision-making. And I think that's because they all, at least these presidents, viewed their authority as chief executive to carry out the law, meaning they had to have full control over anybody who carried out the law on the president's behalf. So it seems to me under that type of analysis, I think I come out where uh, Andrew does, is that you, as a president, can fire U.S. attorneys whenever you want for any reason, hopefully. Can I no pause, reason. John, can I pause over that? What if the U.S. attorney is investigating you? Or your brother, for example. Me personally. The, no, no, no. You're, if you're the president. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. If you're the president yeah. and, um, and, and uh, the U.S. attorney uh, is uh, prosecuting, investigating you for a high crime and misdemeanor or for anything else. Yeah, I, I, would, I would think that still the president has the authority to fire the special prosecutor, whatever prosecutor, doesn't have to be special prosecutor. And then uh, I think, as Andrew said, he has to pay the political price, which ultimately could be impeachment. And I think that's also the answer to what's uh, motivating uh, Jamie is that if you do have a prosecutor who's, uh, I mean, a president who's dropping cases and bringing cases for partisan reasons, then the Congress could, could and should impeach him for that. But that there's not a constitutionally required block. Does anybody have a, anybody on the panel disagree with that? Bob? Well, I, I, having some passing familiarity with the impeachment issue, I certainly wouldn't, uh, wouldn't disagree that, uh, that obstruction uh, is not uh, an appropriate grounds for impeachment. Uh, whether it is, in fact, the ultimate penalty, I'm not quite sure. It raises the question of whether or not uh, a president can be prosecuted uh, outside of the or after the impeachment uh, process uh, for, uh, for obstruction. Uh, while uh, you know, historical analogies certainly uh, are, are appropriate to understand uh, uh, fundamental issues such as those we're talking about here, the independence of the Department of Justice, which is actually what we're talking about, uh, because uh, U.S. attorneys, federal prosecutors, are of the Department of Justice, so we're talking about the, the independence of an institution of our government. Uh, while certainly those uh, uh, in earlier times, uh, when the power of the federal government, which is approaching uh, omnipotence uh, in, in, our, in our era now, uh, was much less, uh, was very different uh, as, the, uh, as the country was forming, so the, the analogies to... Uh, you know, the first or the third president, uh, I'm not sure, really have a great deal of relevance. Uh, the fact of the matter is uh, that with the, the power and the number of federal grand juries, uh, the number of offenses uh, that can give rise to federal prosecutions, uh, numbering in the thousands 
uh, as opposed probably to the dozens or hundreds uh, back in uh, the formative years of our country, uh, it becomes much more important uh, with that size of the federal judiciary, the power of federal prosecutors to may pay much closer attention than we might have 200 years ago to what these men and women are doing uh, and to make sure that uh, the White House, that is the political arm of our government, uh, is not able to and does not exert political influence uh, on those prosecutorial decisions uh, of the U.S. attorneys. Uh, so I think it is extremely important that in a scenario such as you've outlined here, Judge, uh, we, uh, uh, we would have and, and certainly would if the, uh, such a situation presented itself again, uh, inquire very, very deeply and very aggressively both by Congress and by the Department of Justice and its prosecutors uh, into whether or not there, in fact, was obstruction of justice. Andy, what do you think? <clears throat> I, I think the problem with this is that um, the executive power, as it's created in the Constitution, is indivisible. It's completely vested in the president. Uh, and the, the problem with this debate, um, not this debate, but the one that we've had. Over Thank the, you. We appreciate that. <laughs> over the last, um, you know, several uh, months to, I guess, over a year now, um, is there's a limit to how much you can take the president out of something that is completely vested in the president. Uh, and there's a limit to how much you can take politics out of something that is uh, inherently uh, very much wrapped up in policy. Um, we've actually, uh, thanks to Jamie, actually taken a look at some of the um, some of the orders that the all the different attorney generals have uh, implemented, going back, I guess, to Civiletti. Right. right? Um, you know, it's great. There's a a lot of uh, effort at, at I think admirably at buffering. Um, there's a lot of effort at trying to make sure that people who are in the field doing cases are not getting political pressure either from the White House or the Hill. But at the end of every one of these orders, you get down to the bottom line, and it says nothing uh, heretofore said uh, shall impede the ability of the president to communicate directly with the attorney general. You know, at the end of the day, um, I, I think we can put a lot of safeguards in, uh, but this still remains a political problem, um, and it's not one that can be overly regulated because – you can't do anything about the fact, nor do I think we should want to do anything about the fact that the executive power is completely vested in the president. And there is just a, a practical and good, actually, policy limitation uh, to how much you can interfere with that. All right, I'm, going to, I'm going to get to these um, policies in one second and ask Jamie actually to describe them. But I just want to ask John actually two questions on, on this point. So is your view... Uh, so in, in the hypothetical I was giving, which is where the president removes somebody who is actively investigating him and maybe the only person who is actively investigating him, is your view that the president can't be guilty of obstruction of justice, that the statute doesn't apply to him uh, constitutionally, or is it that you think that as a matter of statutory construction, obstruction doesn't include removing um, somebody for an, any particular reason? And then the second question is, with the same issue... Am, am I answering this under oath? No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> a tad defensive, are we? <laughs> Would it make a difference? <laughs> no, I guess not. No. And then the second question, what if it's the Attorney General rather than the President? I, I guess I would say um, it would have to be a matter of statutory construction, that you would uh, right, not read the obstruction of justice statute 
to impinge on the president's constitutional authority. And so you could say, well, is the president's constitutional authority to remove, which had been recognized by, you know, Supreme Courts and uh, the framers and James Madison and so on from the very beginning, is that infringed by the obstruction of justice statute? I, I would personally say it, w- it was, but I mean, it's a hard, qu- I'm not denying it's a hard question. Because I would, I would think in the, the remedy then has to be something political like impeachment rather than legal. Um, so I don't, I, I don't think you could read Congress as being able to criminalize the president's exercises of his inherent constitutional authority. And the question is really what are the outlines of that? Um, the second question is uh, the attorney general. Um, I would say the attorney general, it depends on whether he's doing it on his own authority at the order of the president. I would think if he's doing it on his own, uh, then he's not exercising the president's removal authority under the Constitution, and so then he might be subject to the obstruction uh, statute. Um, just one, can I give me one please, last comment please, about the, the um, I have to say I was surprised at what Bob said about the size of the government and all the criminal laws and so on, meaning that we need to have a more independent uh, prosecutorial branch, like suppose, take it to an extreme, should, because of that, should we have an independent branch of government, like an independent agency that would all be prosecutors? It seems to me actually the more complex and the more extensive the power of the federal government, you want to have more directly accountable checks on the power of the executive branch, which means you try to, I think the traditional answer had been to try to centralize uh, accountable authority in the president because we can hold him responsible through elections. If you have someone exercising this prosecutorial authority completely insulated from presidential control, then you really are at the hands of some unelected and unaccountable. Oh, just like the courts. No offense, but you're at the hands of unelected and unaccountable. Yeah, I, I thought that body. was in the Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> Article friend. three or something. I don't know. Uh, right, let me, before you've now raised actually two interesting issues. One is this issue about uh, reform proposals about uh, giving some independence, and I want to I want to um, ask the whole panel about one such proposal, um, but that's going to come at the end. The other issue, um, which I'm going to ask Jamie to talk about in one second, is the the rules that the various departments of justices and White Houses have established, not from a legal point of view, but from an appearance slash political point of view. But just let me give a chance for anybody else on the panel to respond to John's uh, point, which he isn't making definitively, but it does appear to be leaning to, which is that the president can't be guilty uh, constitutionally can't be guilty of a statute barring obstruction of justice. That you can't write a statute, I take it, even, that, that says the president can't remove somebody if it would interfere with the criminal investigation of the president. Have I got that fair enough? Yeah, and I would admit that's in tension no, with Morrison versus Olson and right, Supreme okay. Court cases. Yeah. Does, it, does anybody want to respond to that? Take the other side, Bob. Uh, thank you, Judge. Uh, I think this, this sort of gets us into this, this notion that has some currency recently of uh, something called a, a unitary uh, president, uh, which uh, I, I think is, uh, uh, has been, the term has been stretched and used in, in ways that bear little relationship to whatever meaning it might legitimately have had at one point to simply indicate that within the executive branch, uh, there has to be ultimately one decision maker. Uh, and that is, in fact, the, the decider. Uh, I'm not, I don't think that's a term in the Constitution, but the, the president uh, himself. The way it is used uh, by some who seek to clothe the president with the, this omnipotent power to ignore laws or, in the case we're discussing here, to be completely above the law simply because the president has an appointed of authority insulates him necessarily from being held accountable for legal abuse or violation of the federal law, 
uh, is not something that I, I certainly, as an attorney, uh, would adhere to, uh, regardless of stepping, whether I step into or out of my former prosecutorial shoes. Uh, I operate from the presumption that in our system of government, every official in the government is accountable to the law and ought to be held liable for uh, violations thereof, whether it's the president or not. But this notion that now uh, the, the unitary executive means that no, none of the two other branches of government can pierce the, the sphere of power that surrounds that unitary president uh, I think is something that uh, is at, at best a, a slippery slope uh, and at worst uh, a very, very dangerous uh, invitation to, uh, to tyranny. Uh, I don't think that uh, any president ought to be above the law uh, simply because of this administrative power to appoint an official uh, should not be seen as a get-out-of-jail-free card for president, and I don't think it was intended that way by our framers. Andy, you, you mentioned actually unitary executive in passing in one of your other answers. Do you have a view on this point? Well, <clears throat> what if Congress enacted a statute that said the Congress shall be the commander in chief? Well, you can't change my hypothetical. Well, but I think that is the point. You can't change the Constitution. And when, when we say that we're under the rule of law, the rule of law includes the Constitution. Uh, and the Constitution vests certain areas uh, in the uh, unique and complete control of the president. That is, I mean, that's just a fact. Um, so I think to say that we are under the Constitution, uh, or I guess if the point is to say that we're, we're all under the rule of law, um, that's fine as long as we understand that the, the rule of law includes the Constitution, it includes the framework uh, that we have, uh, and that is a framework in which certain powers are committed to the president and they cannot be uh, detracted from by acts of Congress. So on this hypothetical obstruction statute, which says the president cannot obstruct justice by removing a U.S. A prosecutor who is investigating the president of a crime, where do you come out on that? Well, I, I think the president can be impeached. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, I think if it's uh, if you have a situation where, you know, a president is using his or abusing his authority to interfere with law enforcement functions, and it's a serious enough situation, then I think the president can be impeached. Uh, and that it doesn't upset me if he can't be indicted, because I think as far as the society is concerned, whether he can be impeached is uh, by dimensions a, a bigger deal than that. Jamie? Yeah, I, I would agree with Andy on that. It, it doesn't actually matter uh, if the sanction for a president obstructing justice is indictment or impeachment. There is a, a method of accountability beyond the method of, of elections. I also think the notion of uh, having an executive branch that is responsive to a president and the president is responsive to the electorate proves too much, in the, certainly in the context of the Justice Department, because if that were the case, you would have all political appointees in the Justice Department, and we don't. We have a civil service uh, in the Justice Department uh, and in our uh, law enforcement agencies generally, and we have that for a very good reason, which is that you certainly want to have your political appointees be able to come in and, for example, not enforce the sedition laws if the president thinks that that is a, not a good priority for his Department of Justice, but uh, or or prosecute immigration cases or prosecute gun cases from administration to administration. We have 
very substantial changes in the way that uh, our, our prosecutorial resources are, are used. But the, uh, uh, both on, for legal and prudential reasons, we have uh, our prosecutors uh, uh, abiding by um, the law, as Bob Barr says, abiding by the custom in, as to what is really some, a case that you would indict and which one would not be. Um, and they are accountable to all of these rules that we have surrounded them with. So that is a cabin on, on executive authority. And I don't think uh, that that thought is inconsistent with the notion that a U.S. attorney is an appointee of the president uh, he serves. John, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I just to make a small point. That, uh, under um, Congressman Barr's approach, then Andrew Johnson should have been impeached because Congress passed a law prohibiting the removal of any cabinet officer without Senate advice and consent. It also passed a law forbidding the president from removing any general in the occupation south. And he went ahead and did it, and he got impeached for it, but he was acquitted. But that's an example. It's not just a hypothetical. It's an example where Congress passed a statute trying to constrain the removal power, and it said it was an obstruction of justice, so that was, you know, that the president was obstructing congressional policy and reconstruction. And I think the judgment of history, uh, you know, if you read John F. Kennedy's Profiles and Courage, you know, judgment of history was that it was good that Congress didn't impeach, I mean, convict Andrew Johnson uh, for that. So this is something we've gone through before. It's not some extraordinary new claim. Um, and you, know, you can agree with it even if you don't care about or want to reach the question of substantive powers, but just the question of who manages all the personnel in the executive branch. All right. So let's stray from the law for a moment and go to the question that Andy was talking about, political and with a sense of small p, appearance, uh, what's sort of what's what's the better approach? And I'm going to let Jamie describe these from in just a moment, uh, beginning with uh, probably with the aforementioned uh, uh, Judge uh, Griffin Bell, uh, but maybe even with Ed Levy before him. Although the only uh, surviving scrap of paper we have is from uh, Attorney General Civiletti. All the attorney generals since then have promoted have promulgated procedures that limit and control communications between the White House and the. Uh, um, um, uh, Main Justice and the uh, U.S. Attorneys, on the other hand. So um, maybe, Jamie, if you could briefly describe these, and then we'll ask about whether this, these are good ideas or bad ideas. I mean, very simply, what's been in place for decades is a process, and the process is that uh, communications on enforcement matters, not on, you know, legislation or grants or anything like that, but on enforcement matters, has been limited uh, to variously the attorney general and the deputy on on the on the justice department side and the white house counsel and deputy on the white house side um, so that a very considered judgment can be made about whether any further communication is appropriate to um, have after that and and if so who should have that communication and under what circumstances and that's worked actually uh, uh, pretty well. I mean, and I can say from my own experience, having worked with five White House counsels in the, uh, in the uh, Clinton uh, White House, uh, it, it, no matter what the personal style was, there was a sense that this was a serious matter if you were going to raise an issue of an enforcement decision that the department was making, and uh, it had to be handled, I say immodestly, by grown-ups. And I think that's a good, I think that's a good rule. Um, for reasons that I'm not aware of, uh, at, the, at, the, um, at the beginning of, uh, of the Bush administration, when this same 
rule was promulgated, it, it, instead of saying the attorney general and the deputy, it said their offices. And the same thing uh, similarly uh, broadly using the term offices uh, to include various executive offices within the White House. And so you ended up with at least potentially hundreds of people being able to have those communications. Um, uh, I think, you know, uh, 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 Judge McKay said that he would revisit that, and I expect it will revert to the ordinary course. I think it's just a good principle, and it, and it helps a lot. Now, in every one of these, Andy is absolutely right, in every one of these letters it says, you know, the president has the authority, but the president is agreeing to, to restrain himself, uh, if you will, from uh, communication on all manner of issues in any way he, he would want to with the Justice Department. And in every one of them it says the Justice Department has an obligation to tell the president when there are matters pending within the Justice Department that could affect critical responsibilities of the president. Okay, before we get too much into the details, let me ask whether there's anybody who thinks it's a bad idea to have these kind of funnel, these kind of screens up uh, as a matter of policy, uh, taking, uh, leaving aside the law question. Um, is it, uh, anybody think it's a bad idea to uh, restrict and limit in some way who can talk to who, uh, to whom? Sorry. No one. Okay, so now what about the question of how wide uh, the, the holes in the screen are? Should, should they go to whole offices? Should they only go to the principals, only the principals and their deputies? Um, um, and, um, and, and then we'll go to the question of what should be covered. Does anybody care one way or the other on that? Andy, you're looking. I think in field U.S. attorney's offices, and that's what I can speak to, you want that to be a, a very, very narrow Pipeline. You don't want um, U.S. attorneys or assistant U.S. attorneys who are actually handling cases, um, fielding phone calls from uh, either people from the Hill or the White House. Um, and I, in, in the office where I worked, and I think this is probably mirrored throughout the country, um, the line prosecutor's duty when you got a, a call like that or a communication like that uh, was you would report it to your unit chief, who would report it to the chief of the criminal division, and then it would go to an executive assistant United States attorney. And the assistant was basically cut out of the process unless there was a reason for the assistant to, to get back in the process. Uh, and I, I, think, I think that works well. And, I, uh, you know, running it the other way, uh, I, I also agree that at the, at the main justice level, um, you want to have as many or as few people involved in those communications as you can. Grown-ups, like, like Jamie said, I think is the way that you want to do that. Um, I'd also just note that there's a certain, um, you know, we're looking at this in the context of, uh, of potential obstruction of justice. There's also another Upside to the way um, you know information from actual litigations flows upward to policymakers. Um, we, I, I can just speak from my own experience. When we prosecuted the the blind shake, the arsenal that federal prosecutors had to bring terrorism cases was was woeful. Um, 
you know, it, it was fine if you had a completed bombing, but if you had, uh, you know, what we had in, in the second phase of the plot, which was a conspiracy to kill tens of thousands of people, literally, uh, which turned out not to be successful, you had to basically charge that under the federal uh, conspiracy statute, the, you know, the catch-all, which is a, a penalty of zero to five years. Um, you know, the, the case, because I guess the country was unfamiliar with the phenomenon of, of international terrorism, at least on the scale that we have now, um, was a real eye-opener in terms of how, how inadequate the resources that we had to prosecute these types of violations were. And I think largely because of that and because of the way that that moved upward, uh, there ended up, I think, ultimately being um, a major overhaul of counterterrorism law, which actually, um, you know, the, the most famous of these statutes, I guess, is the Patriot Act, but the most important of them in terms of how, how uh, you know, prosecutors handle terrorism cases is uh, the legislation that was enacted in 1996. And I think that a lot of that was directly because of information that flowed upward through the pipeline from litigation, where, you know, people who were in the field were letting the policy people know what the problems were. Is there any time, anybody, first of all, is any, everybody seems to be saying in a general matter these kind of screens are okay uh, and maybe even a good idea. Are there any topics that as a matter of, again, appearance, not law, the Justice Department should not share with the White House? And, of course, for example, something involving the president, et cetera. Okay, Bob. I can. Wait, uh, uh, Bob just raised it. Well, oh. Good. Part of the magic uh, of our, our federal judicial system, particularly as it relates to prosecutors over the, the course of our, you know, the last 200, a little more than 200 years, and why, by and large, the system has worked so well, uh, with some exceptions, but overall I think has worked very, very well, uh, is uh, this, this unusual mix between independent and dependent federal prosecutors. Uh, federal prosecutors are uh, one of the reasons why they are appointed, or should be, uh, is because they know the districts uh, in which they will serve. They are, generally speaking, from the districts uh, in which they will serve. They have a feel for the, uh, the politics the, with a small p, not, part, not necessarily partisan, but for the law enforcement priorities, uh, the, uh, uh, the issues that are important to people in the district, and uh, any attorney general and any president uh, who has a, a good feel for and an, and an appropriate feel for the administration of justice would want to encourage the exercise of that, of that judgment on the part of the U.S. attorneys. Uh, but you don't want, uh, you certainly don't want U.S. attorneys to uh, be insulated from uh, communications with Washington, but I think it is very, very important uh, for the appearance, if nothing else, the appearance that, is the, that gives rise to the credibility of the Department of Justice, that there not be undue influence. Uh, and it is an important job of the Attorney General uh, in which uh, the, the former Attorney General, I think, failed completely to provide uh, that strong support and strong guidance for the U.S. Attorney, but also to insulate them, to proactively, affirmatively insulate them from the political pressure. For example, that uh, David Iglesias uh, uh, very clearly believed and apparently was under in, in, in New Mexico. Uh, and one of the ways that you do that is to very, very carefully circumscribe and de delineate uh, the manner of communications from the White House with regard to any uh, pending uh, criminal prosecution or investigation. It might not even be a, a prosecution uh, yet. 
But uh, those kind, those types of communications, and you need to be, you need to define it, I think, very broadly, uh, so that they do go through the attorney general or the deputy, not. I think uh, as is current uh, procedure under uh, the, the most recent memo by attorney, former Attorney General Gonzalez that opens up the number of people that can communicate back and forth with the White House to approaching 900 people. Uh, that uh, because, uh, as I think, I don't know whether it was John or Jamie mentioned, uh, or maybe Andy, uh, because the way they define these, uh, they, they throw these terms in the office of the Attorney General, the office of the deputy, as opposed to the deputy uh, or they, they open it up to his or her designees and so forth. So what starts out is a very good, very sound, very carefully delineated funnel uh, through which political com communications with the political side of the government, that is the White House, go, becomes uh, a, a, you know, large enough to drive a Mack truck through. Well, without, uh, without regard, just for the moment, how big the hole is, is there a is, – Jamie, maybe you were about to answer this – is there a topic – that the attorney general should not tell the president about uh, with respect to a criminal prosecution. Is there a kind of criminal prosecution that the president should not tell the attorney general about? Well, I mean, I mean, I attorney can, general should you not know, tell I the can, president. You know, going back to your, uh, your suggestion, uh, Merrick, that we look at either hypotheticals or actual past cases. I mean, we had um, during our tenure uh, any number of instances in which uh, there was a debate about what do we tell, do we tell the White House about a pending matter. And it comes up most, um, most acutely where there is an investigation of a foreign leader, of, a, of an ambassador or a head of state. I mean, this happened in Bush 41 where, you know, we were, the Justice Department was uh, uh, investigating and about to indict and uh, 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 Noriega and, and, and no, no, one knew, no one knew about it at a, at a policy level. Um, uh, we had an investigation of uh, a drug investigation in Haiti that could have implicated the Aristide uh, uh, administration just at the moment we were about to in, invade in order to in, uh, uh, establish uh, that administration. So, um, uh, you know, this is very difficult. You'd think, well, you know, you just shouldn't talk to the White House, but there are lots of things on which you must. Now, how, did, how does it come up in a, in a, in a, in a difficult way? Well, um, you may recall that there was a time at which the FBI was uh, hearing that and seeing in various uh, seemingly unrelated uh, investigations that there were various uh, Chinese Americans or uh, people who were of Chinese descent but not uh, uh, citizens who were trying to make contributions to members of Congress and uh, uh, in the presidential campaign. And the Bureau said, well, we want to go and brief members of Congress so that they can be careful. And I somewhat naively said, well, don't you think you ought to tell, we ought to tell the White House too? It's the same concern. And um, this is one, one of the very rare times when Director Free and I completely disagreed. He said no because he thought that it would be tipping off a potential uh, defendant. And I thought we have Madeleine Albright, the Secretary of State, is on her way to China. And if she doesn't know that the Chinese are trying to destabilize our, our government, that's a very bad thing for the country. And I'm sure there's something that we can share that won't 
uh, undermine the investigation. And we had a very big argument about that. I lost. Uh, uh, I, that is, the attorney general uh, uh, sided with uh, sided with the director. Uh, but I think that was the wrong decision. I would make that dis the same decision uh, uh, again today. Uh, I think that the Justice Department has very important responsibilities, uh, and sometimes those come into conflict. And the responsibility uh, uh, to the President of the United States in carrying out a vast array of, 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 of his responsibilities is very acute and not something that can be covered elsewhere in the administration. But these things do arise, and they have arisen in just nearly every uh, Justice Department over the last uh, two or three decades. John, let me, let me ask you the same uh, point that Jamie's uh, making here uh, with an even sharper uh, historical example. Um, uh, during the Carter administration, um, the Libyans uh, were alleged, I don't remember what the facts were, but were alleged to have approached Billy Carter, the president's brother. Um, um, and the question was, was it all right for the attorney general to tell the president that this had happened? On the one hand, you have the, you know, the problem, it's the president's brother. Uh, on the other hand, you have the problem, it's the Libyans. What, what do you think, if, leaving aside the law question, I know what you think the answer to the law question is. What do you think uh, is, is the right thing to do from us? So let me make clear, I didn't go out with Amy Carter. That never crossed my mind. Case. Okay, well, I thought that's what you were thinking. Um, you know, I, I, I would say, though, that I think actually for the reasons uh, Jamie gave, that the Justice Department still has to tell the president because... There are all kinds of – the president's in charge of you know, managing the entire executive branch, and the Justice Department and what it does is of a piece with other things the executive branch is doing, and it's not necessarily the case that what the Justice Department should want every time should prevail. So the president needs to know that information so he can or she can make a judgment about right, whether to pursue the prosecutions or not consistent with other objectives that the executive branch is carrying out, even if it involves the president's you know, – uh, the president's brother. It's still, it's still part of national policy. It's still part of enforcing law. So I would think just as a matter of good management to the, the government, you still want to require the Justice Department to keep the president consistently informed of all important cases and not sort of uh, cordon off any type or any category of case away from the president. Andy or Bob, you have a reaction to that particular hypothetical? I, I, I agree with that. I, I, you know, I don't think, first of all, I think Odd as, as this is to say from a prosecutor, there are some things that are more important than life, in life than criminal cases and criminal investigations. And there are some things that are more important uh, to the operation of the country and the government than, uh, you know, whether an investigation goes along the pattern that a prosecutor would like to see uh, and the investigators would like to see the investigation uh, go along. Uh, so from just from a policy standpoint, um, I, I think that's where you have to come out, and I just I, I don't mean to be a to beat a dead horse on this, but the the attorney general does not have an independent reservoir of power under the Constitution. The Constitution commits all of the executive power to the president, um, and while I could see from a policy standpoint uh, that a president would want to set things up in such a way that that you would perform the presidential responsibilities efficiently and in a way that was completely above reproach or as much above reproach as you could make it. I don't know what right an attorney general has uh, since he's executing the president's power to withhold information from the president. 
Bob's got his finger in the air. I take it that it's not going to be a I agree. Well, and, and it's not testing the, the wind uh, in this case. Uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, the power that the Attorney General uh, derives and uh, the standard that the Attorney General is to uphold is not the President. The Attorney General does not take an oath of office to the President. The Attorney General takes an oath of office to the Constitution and the laws of this land. And uh, that uh, must be uh, his or her absolute ultimate responsibility. Uh, that does not mean that the Attorney General can never communicate with the White House. That would be absurd. And it may be that there would be cases, for example, involving uh, Billy Carter, uh, and, and one would have to look at the, at the facts and circumstances of each one of these cases uh, where it may make sense because it is much different from a prosecution. The fact pattern might, might be truly simply uh, a policy decision, a policy imperative, uh, that it would make sense for the Attorney General to uh, communicate uh, with the White House. There may be other instances in which, in order for the Attorney General to carry out his or her responsibility under their oath of office to see that the laws are faithfully executed, uh, that they not inform the White House. The Attorney General has a higher authority to which they answer than the President of the United States, and that is the Constitution and the rule of law. And the Attorney General must make the decisions on what to communicate to the White House based on that imperative, not uh, I work for the president. Just um, I, I want to be clear here. Um, while I disagree with what Congressman Barr said, I think as a matter of honor, the attorney general has to be prepared to resign uh, if the attorney general is directed to do something that's lawless or um, corrupt. Uh, I, I don't mean to be understood, and I certainly don't want to be understood, as saying that because the Attorney General uh, draws his power from the President, that anything the President says goes. Um, but I don't think, as a matter of law and as a matter of the Constitution, uh, I don't think that you can avoid the fact that the Constitution commits all of the executive power to the President, and that in the acting or the uh, use of that power, the Attorney General is the agent of the President. Let me um, switch gears for a moment to another topic, and this is the relationship between Maine Justice and the U.S. Attorney's offices, how much independence a U.S. Attorney should have from Maine Justice, what kind of communications should go in both directions, now, um, and in particular whether 9-11 has changed uh, the calculus in, the, in that regard. And for this, I'm going to turn to Andy, who is, was an uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney both before and after 9-11, and can give us an idea of what and, and in, in what I think everybody would regard as the most independent United States Attorney's Office, the Southern District of New York. Give an idea of what it was like before 9-11, what it was like after, whether you think the change is a good change or a bad change, et cetera. Well, the, the change I think that we're talking about is whether you can go from a, a prosecution mode to a prevention mode. Um, and I think we, we at least nominally and, and thematically have tried to do that. I'm not sure that we've, we've in, our, in our minds, run through all the ramifications of what that means. But um, I, I think clearly post 9-11, the ambit of what we think of as national security and the potential threat to the country is, is bigger, number one. Uh, and number two, if you're going to make a decision that your main priority is prevention rather than prosecution, 
there is more of an imperative to get information uh, up the chain of command uh, and more of uh, a sense that there are more important things uh, than the bottom line outcome of a prosecution. I mean, if you get down, what we're basically saying is that it's more important uh, to stop the bombing from happening than to prosecute it after it's over. And that, that, that sounds common sense enough, um, but, you know, there's a lot of fallout from that that I don't know that we've, we've necessarily bought onto yet. For example, uh, you know, it, it necessarily means that the prosecutors today have a much more difficult job than I had in 1993 or 1995, because um, success now is making sure that things don't happen. Uh, in order to make sure that things or bad things don't happen, you have to interrupt them at a much more premature stage when your evidence necessarily is going to be much more ambiguous. Uh, the cases we tried in the 1990s, um, they, they had many challenges attendant to them. They were, they were much different than the normal run of criminal cases. Uh, but one thing that we didn't have to deal with um, was the sense that we were possibly overreaching, uh, that we were, you know, assuming that there were, uh, you know, dark, deadly conspiracies where there weren't. We mainly mobilized after bad things happened. Uh, now, we, you know, using the laws that I mentioned before from 1996, um, we're trying to interrupt things, especially with the material support prosecutions, at a, at a very, very early stage. So uh, if you could say, uh, you were telling me before how that's changed with respect to the role of Maine Justice, even in operational aspects of the U.S. Attorney's Office. Well, yeah, I think that's another thing. The, the Justice Department, I think, also now, excuse me, makes an effort um, to be, to, to kind of partner up on prosecutions with the field offices, which was something that really was not done, it certainly wasn't done uh, in New York. Um, I don't think Mary Jo would have allowed it. Um, Partnering I, up sounds very benign. Right. And I don't think that the in, in the Southern District in particular, it would have been viewed as benign. No. Well, I, I mean, we, there was a strong tradition in the office, and I think it's a good tradition, um, that the, the Southern District of New York handled its own caseload and that uh, the Justice Department was not there to come up and try cases with with our office. The Justice Department was there to do the things that the Justice Department does. And I think that there is... That has begun to blur in the post-9/11 period, and I frankly think it was uh, it was better when the department was not as operational as it is now. Bob, you were concerned about independence of the U.S. attorneys. How, what, what's your view about how independent they should be of not of the president, but of the of the main justice? Um, I mean, you, US you were you were the U.S. attorney. I forgot to put in, put into your into your biography. weren't you the U.S. attorney in Georgia also? Yep. I, I served. Uh, as U.S. Attorney in, uh, for the Northern District of Georgia from 86 to, uh, to 90. Uh, certainly, U.S. attorneys uh, have largely enjoyed uh, a fair degree of independence, not absolute independence from the Department of Justice. They are not uh, and were not intended to, and I don't think we would want a cadre of U.S. attorneys that are completely independent of the Department of Justice. It's, uh, it's a non sequitur, I think. Uh, and there are categories of cases uh, in which uh, and as to which U.S. attorneys are required uh, to seek permission or approval from the Department of Justice before either initiating an investigation, sometimes initiating certain investigative techniques uh, involving individuals, for example, public uh, uh, officials, uh, or seeking indi indictments. Uh, 
that's important because uh, the U.S. attorney uh, can be held to, and to reflect the priorities of the Department of Justice, which come down from presumably from the president through the attorney general. Uh, if a U.S. attorney disagrees with those priorities, then the solution is, as is, is, is Annie mentioned, uh, for the same as for the attorney general, uh, they, they should resign. Uh, but it is important uh, that uh, the attorney general and those immediately under him, particularly the deputy attorney general, uh, have both the support uh, of the U.S. attorneys and vice versa, and that they support their U.S. attorneys. Uh, the it makes no sense at all from a policy standpoint uh, to have uh, your U.S. attorneys uh, out there uh, who feel uh, a, a, a breach uh, with the Department of Justice, who do not believe that they are getting the support that they need. They're, your, uh, they're an administration's uh, very best public advocates for enforcing uh, the, uh, the rule of law and the law enforcement priorities of the district, uh, of the administration. Uh, with regard to also the question, Judge, uh, regarding uh, whether 9-11 has changed this, uh, it has, uh, but I disagree that it should. Uh, I don't think that a Department of Justice, as it is configured in our system of government, uh, should be used, its prosecutors should be used uh, as a preventative arm uh, of the government. Uh, after all, we have any number of agencies and tremendous capabilities in our, with our federal government, far too many in, in the eyes of many of us, but you have a very powerful federal government, many armed uh, with all sorts of agencies, uh, and there are properly uh, agencies that are, uh, that, whose job it is to prevent uh, acts of terrorism, to prevent breaches of, of our borders and so forth. Uh, but if we shift the mode after uh, low these many, many decades, indeed a couple of centuries, from viewing the role of the prosecutor and the role of the Department of Justice to see that justice is done and to prosecute those uh, crimes for which prosecution is appropriate within the, the, the rule of law to one of, oh, we're going to use these vast resources to go out and prevent crime, uh, you've changed something more than simply the uh, the, 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 the procedures, you've changed the whole role of the judiciary and the role of having a Department of Justice uh, in the first place. So I think we, we travel down that path uh, you know, at, at great peril, uh, and if we are going to make those decisions, uh, it requires more than simply a decision by a particular administration to say, oh, uh, you know, this is the way it's going to be now. That really requires a, a fundamental uh, look at the, what the Department of Justice is, role, what the role of the prosecutor is, and we haven't really gone through that uh, yet. That's partly the fault of the Congress for failing to do so. Jamie, you have a view on uh, the degree of independence appropriate for the U.S. Attorney's offices and or whether 9-11 changes that? I, I think that the uh, events around 9-11 certainly have changed the relationship between Maine Justice and the local U.S. attorneys, and quite consciously so on the part of, of the Justice Department uh, and, its, and its leadership. Um, U.S. attorneys are selected by the political leadership in their jurisdiction, uh, often uh, have the backing of a powerful senator or senators, and just as a practical matter, tend to view themselves as quite independent of uh, main justice. As a consequence, over a period of a couple of decades, the 
role of the litigating divisions, which was always to make sure there was consistent application of the, of the law, and indeed try uh, cases particularly where U.S. Attorney's Office might not have expertise in that particular area, um, had been eviscerated. And the same thing was true uh, um, to a certain extent at the FBI. So. Uh, and the and the and the the tension was greatest actually vis-a-vis -vis New York because the 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 FBI in New York and the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York were very strong, very powerful, very capable, and key terrorism cases happened there. And so uh, the locus of information and activity and control of those uh, uh, those activities was in those. New York offices of the FBI and the U.S. Attorney. And it left the criminal division of the Justice Department and Maine and the, and the central part of the FBI bare, which, you know, if you read the 9-11 Commission report, you see in spades there was almost nothing going on at the FBI headquarters on counterterrorism. Very little capability could be found there, and thus lots of connections uh, with what was happening in the rest of the country were being lost. No one was really paying attention to them. So if you talk to Bob Mueller or you talk to Larry Thompson, who was the deputy AG at the time, they will say, you know, we um, essentially took the opportunity of 9-11 of to readjust. And that, as Andy said, has indeed, has indeed happened. Now, as I say, there were instances in which Maine Justice uh, jumped into cases uh, in the past, uh, cases that would normally have been handled locally. It required some political uh, maneuvering. Uh, after the Murrah building was blown up in Oklahoma City, uh, one Merrick Garland was dispatched by Janet Reno to essentially um, run that investigation because, after all, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Oklahoma City wasn't the biggest. It didn't have uh, tremendous capacity. And we were worried about the biggest case that we'd ever had um, uh, being handled in the, in, in the right way. Um, one other remark I would and make. Just to be fair, there was actually no U.S. attorney at the well, time. There was an acting U.S. attorney. Had there been a U.S. attorney, we would have done the same thing. And I can tell you that from personal conversations. But never mind. Eric is trying to be modest. Um, the other comment I would like to make is this, that the... We have a, actually a beautiful system in the sense that we have an integrated federal prosecutive and investigative force, and we have local offices who can respond to local needs, who can uh, uh, respond to their local judiciary so that you can have an amalgam of your federal priorities and Local, uh, local effectiveness and sensibility. So uh, uh, in a jurisdiction in which no jury is going to vote for the death penalty, you know, you listen to your U.S. attorney when he, when he says, I'm going to lose the conviction if you make me seek the death penalty. In a jurisdiction in which the judges don't like thousands of small drug cases being brought, you know, you might listen to your U.S. attorney who says, I'm going to, it's going to hurt me in the other priorities if I, if I uh, do this to the extent that you want. And that's, a, that's healthy. 
And, uh, and getting that equilibrium is difficult, but it's important to do. Right, John, I'm going to let you have the last word. JP okay. gave me the high sign that if we're going to have any time for questions, this will be it. So you have the last word okay. before we get to questions. Thanks. Um, I, I actually I think I probably have a different view than uh, Jamie and Bob in this respect. I think there should be more control by Maine Justice over the U.S. attorneys. And actually, I think it's a strange historical artifact that we have the system we have. I mean, the reason we have it is because there were U.S. attorneys before there was a real Department of Justice, which didn't really arrive until um, after, you know, the Civil War and thereafter. Um, but ask yourselves this. Is there any other federal agency outside the Justice Department in which you have 92 independent, you know, presidentially appoint nominated and Senate-confirmed uh, officers who um, are spread all throughout the country? I don't know if it's necessarily the most efficient way to run the system. I mean, does it, you know, does the Interior Department, does the you know, the, even the Defense Department have that kind of independence granted to subordinate uh, field officers, essentially. So you can certainly have uh, um, benefits of decentralization by getting to know local conditions, but I don't know that means that you have to have a system where, you know, each of the people out there is the honorable and has a certain uh, feeling that they can resist commands from uh, Washington, D.C. And that gets to my second point, which is, um, well, who wins out? Let's ask again, who wins out if U.S. attorneys do become more independent and there's less main justice control? It's going to be the senators from those home states, right? It's not that um, nobody gains by uh, growing independence. If you did uh, reduce the contacts between main justice and U.S. attorneys, then senators, I think, and congressmen, local congressmen, are going to have a lot more influence in the way prosecutions uh, can be run. Uh, that's our experience, certainly, with the independent agencies, that when agencies um, start to their personnel become protected from removal, they start thinking they work for Congress just as much as for the president. And I want to ask you, you know, we may not like the way the president makes prosecutorial decisions. Do we want to hand that over to Congress? Uh, I, I don't think so, but maybe some people do. The last point I'll make about the 9-11 uh, issue is uh, it seems to me certainly uh, there are a great number of cases where knowledge of local conditions makes sense, but there are also uh, types of cases which have such a national level importance, you would want them to be handled by some central authority uh, within the Justice Department. And I would think that would be terrorism after 9-11. And I, I wouldn't claim that the, the Bush Justice Department did it perfectly. I would, uh, for example, um, uh, put to you the case of Zacharias Massawi. I think that was an example where a U.S. Attorney's Office really pushed hard to prosecute that fellow because it wanted to prove um, that the federal, you know, federal law enforcement system could handle terrorists in a way that Andrew doesn't think they can. And I think uh, if it had been a decision purely under control of the main Justice Department, you might have had a different outcome or you might have had other considerations taken into account. But I think the U.S. Attorney, local U.S. Attorney's Office won that. And I think that the prosecution was a disaster. I mean, I think he, got, he made a, a circus out of the trial proceedings. And I think uh, that's an example where too much local control, too much decentralization may actually harm broader national objectives, which would be advanced through central control and main justice. Okay. Um, I don't know where JP go. Do, how, how do you want to do questions? Do people have a mic or something? Okay, great. Roger. Uh, yes, Judge Erwin, thank you. Um, I want to respond to or ask Bob Barr. Yeah, it has to be a question. Sure. I want to ask Bob Barr. In response uh, to the last question, you disparage the use of, of uh, DOJ um, and the U.S. Attorney's Office for prophylactic purposes. You would return, I assume, to a law enforcement model rather than the post-9-11 um, try to uh, stop terrorism uh, by 
stopping it before it happens. And you said there were other agencies that could lend themselves to that. I don't know what agencies you have in mind in light of the Posse Comitatus Act. It seems to me that the DOJ has stepped up into a more ex-ante position, and I think that's absolutely right. And I'm interested in what other agency you think would step into that role. Well, I didn't have in mind that these issues involving terrorism are fought from beginning to end only within the four corners of our country. What I have in mind are issues, for example, such as much better, more effective use than we've seen in the past of our foreign intelligence capabilities overseas, for example, to do a much better job in a preventative sense. I mean, these are agencies that are designed to gather intelligence on not necessarily just what has happened, but what is likely to happen and what is going through the minds of those who would do us harm to try and identify those who would do us harm and how they would carry these out. That would be one. Another would be to utilize much more effectively here again in a preventative sense our Border Patrol and those other agencies with responsibility for both the physical aspect as well as the economic aspect of border security and the sovereignty of our nation. It is not to say in any way, shape, or form, because I agree with the other three panelists here, that 9-11 did not change, nor should it not have changed, the prioritization. If, in fact, in the post-9-11 world it makes a lot more sense for U.S. attorneys at the direction of Maine Justice to devote more resources to prosecuting cases involving suspected terrorist activity, that's entirely appropriate. What I'm saying, though, is if you take, and I have very high regard, as I know you do, for posse comitatus, what I'm saying is that if you change the focus of our system of justice, which we're talking about here, so that U.S. attorneys are now charged with going out there and preventing crime as opposed to the Anglo-Saxon view of a prosecutor, and that is to prosecute cases within the Fourth Amendment, for example, which last time I looked does not have an asterisk for cases involving suspected terrorism. The Fourth Amendment is the Fourth Amendment. Then you're changing the whole paradigm. That's the question I have. And if we want to go down that road, then it requires, I think, a lot more, particularly as Federalist Force, a lot more than simply the unitary chief executive saying that no longer are prosecutors going to perform their traditional function within the Constitution and within the law, but they're going to go out there and to prevent crime. At least let's have a debate over it and make adjustments to our law. It's much more than simply a policy decision is my point. And he's jumping out of his chair to debate. I just think it's important to highlight here how narrow what we're actually talking about is. No one is saying, I think, that we're changing the paradigm to preventing crime. What we're saying is we're changing the paradigm to preventing terrorism, which is, you know, I mean, it's obviously of huge importance, but in terms of the amount of crime that we're talking about, it's thankfully a very small slice of the law enforcement that we actually do. It's obviously something we have to put a disproportionate, I guess that's probably not the right way to put it, but a very large portion of our resources into it because the consequences of a successful strike 
uh, are, so, uh, are so huge. But I don't think we're talking about changing the paradigm to prevent crime. We're talking about terrorism. And I just think it's, um, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't represent um, the change that we're talking about to suggest that it's something that applies across the board to all law enforcement. I think what we're talking about it very narrowly is the, is the national security paradigm uh, really vis-a-vis uh, the threat of foreign international terrorism. Okay, any questions for the other side of the table? <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, this is for Representative Barr as well. Uh, Representative Barr, how many branches of the federal government would you say there are? <laughs> is this branches? a test question? <laughs> this, because last time I checked my constitution, there were three branches of the federal government. There's not, no, we're, we're we already have one document. unaccountable branch in the judiciary, and you seem to take as a structure of government a fourth independent branch of prosecutors. And we look at the, everybody's concerned about the political, the independence, the president and corruption and firing prosecutors, but I think the fetishization of prosecutorial independence has led to cases like Patrick Fitzgerald running around where nobody can touch him wasting millions of dollars on a case where he knew ahead of time that no crime was committed. Where is the check on prosecutors? They're, they can also, and at least the president is accountable via elections as well as impeachment. And okay, okay, let, 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 let's let him answer. Bob? Uh, I, I don't know whether you've been here for the entire session, but I think there have been any number of examples and areas in which, including those that I have indicated, uh, very clearly illustrate that uh, when we talk about the independence of prosecutors, and I certainly talk about it in terms of a matter of degree, I have stated explicitly here today that I do not believe that prosecutors uh, should ever be considered and were not envisioned by our system of justice to be completely independent. Uh, it's simply a matter of to what degree of independence or dependence do they have. I believe federal prosecutors uh, need to, as I already indicated, to follow the priorities uh, in their office as laid down by the Attorney General uh, from, from the President. And if they, in fact, disagree with those, then the proper course would be to, to resign. They can't just go off on their own, and I don't believe they ought to be allowed to go off on their own and prosecute whatever types of crimes they want. Uh, uh, they're, they're, in the post-9-11 world, those priorities uh, necessarily are very different, and, that, and that's appropriate. Uh, so I certainly uh, have not advocated and would not advocate that, uh, that these prosecutors be completely independent. But there are uh, areas such as those that we've seen with the recent uh, firings of U.S. attorneys uh, uh, over the last year uh, in which I think there have been and you know, may very well have been uh, improper uh, exercise of uh, the, uh, the power to, uh, to retain or not retain uh, prosecutors that raise, that raise legitimate questions about uh, that process. So I take that the answer is there's three branches. <laughs> last, last I looked, the same as the, uh, the, uh, the gentleman, uh, there are three. I a, yes, thank you. I have a question for the panel, which I'd like to follow up on with Professor uh, Yu throughout, which is, and I want to preface my, uh, my oh, thank you for the question to give you a little background. After 9-11, especially after 9-11, and all of the national problems we have, whether it be immigration, terrorism, whatever, hasn't the time come to take a real hard look at whether or not we should have career-appointed prosecutors rather than politically-appointed prosecutors in U.S. attorney's offices. I spent 35 years as a career prosecutor before I retired, mostly at Maine Justice and sometimes in the field. Not only is there a big disconnect between 
the field and, and main justice. There's a huge disconnect between political appointees and, and career people. Now, there are a lot of fine uh, political appointees that I've worked with over the years. You want to disclose which office you were in? <laughs> I was in the organized crime section, the criminal division, for a long time. And I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Hawaii for four or five years and a local prosecutor in New York. Lucky. So I had the gamut of experiences. <laughs> but what you have, not only do you have a tremendous not sharing of information, some of it's been cured by more centralization. But you have a tremendous resentment about any influence from Washington, D.C. on the field, which we've got to overcome. You start off with cynicism. Republicans come in office, they think everybody who works for justice is a, is a Democrat. We have hostility from career people who think everybody who got a political appointee is a political hack until they prove themselves. I'm not saying that's true. It's true in some cases, but not, uh, uh, but not in others. So wouldn't it be time to at least take a hard look at improving the quality of justice, reducing the likelihood of adverse in, uh, political influence by taking a hard look at whether or not we should have career prosecutors running U.S. Attorney's offices. I know there are a lot of problems. You want change for the sake of change. You want new blood, but you don't want a system where you come in for two years and you leave and you have a never-ending rotation and people learning the learning curve. I just like okay. to hear your views. John, you have one second to take your hard look. Now it's over. <laughs> What's your answer? Uh, yeah, I, I think your question is actually a broader one about whether civil service reform that went on at the turn of the last century was a wise decision because the points you make would apply to the rest of the federal bureaucracy as well. And I think, I don't know, I think the jury is out. I mean, we, it's a fact of life that we have the civil service and it's permanent and very difficult to remove anybody. But I think it's a, I think the jury's still out about whether it's, no, my point is, I think the jury's still out whether it's effective, like whether it led to better administration than the system one had before. We used to have, right, the spoil system. And you had much more, I think, political accountability of what our federal government was doing at the cost of some of the things you mentioned. So you'd rather go back to Tammany Hall. Well, okay. yeah, I mean, at least you have political accountability. You just had to bribe the right people, right? Well, is, it, is, there, a, is, <laughs> no, there, is there a place between these? What, uh, we, we said we were going to talk about some independence proposals. So one independence proposal yeah. would be the U.S. attorneys have to be career prosecutors, but it's totally up to the president which career prosecutor to choose as U.S. attorney. Would that help any from your point of view, John? I think it would make things worse if you had to pick a career prosecutor for a U.S. attorney. That's, I think that's the proposal. Andy, as a former career U.S. Uh, prosecutor, do you have a view on that? I, I actually think the way the system works now is fine. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a human system, which means we'll have uh, problems and there'll be injustices and, you know, the whole run. But um, I, I actually think, as Jamie said before, I think the, the mix between the, the independent and the centralization, the priority making, the people in the field who are politically accountable but know what the local conditions are, I, I think that you're playing with fire if you tinker with what we have because I can't think of anything that would be better than what we have. Do Bob or Jamie disagree with that? Well, I would say just uh, two things. One is that um, the leadership of the Justice Department and the White House have to push back on senators who pick, who, who suggest nominees that aren't qualified. Because otherwise you get just the cynicism that you're talking about and you get this dysfunctionality in offices and then usually something r really bad happens because the person is not qualified. Um, and I did that a lot, but it was very hard to do. Uh, uh, if you, and if you, if, as I say, if you don't do it, you're going to end up with problems. The second point I would make is just an observation. Um, you would think that if 
there was any place where you could uh, depoliticize positions, it would be in the marshal service, right? The marshals, the marshals are also political appointees. They're also all over the country, and it's aberrational. We don't have a politicized prison system. We, but if, but it, when you tried to do that. The uh, those who had had the who viewed it as a, a right uh, uh, of theirs to select an appointee in their jurisdiction were up in arms. It just went nowhere. So imagine, just imagine trying to do it uh, for U.S. attorneys. It would be a very heavy lift. Bob, you? I think I think the, the the system that we have is uh, is is tremendous. I think overall uh, it has worked uh, over the course of our history very very well. Uh, it's not perfect, but there's no such thing as a perfect uh, system. Uh, going back to the uh, uh, question by the, uh, the, the prior uh, gentleman, I think he's uh, also absolutely correct, and it's very important to keep in mind that in large measure, those instances in which we have had problems with prosecutors going off on fishing expeditions have not been your United States attorneys. Uh, they have been the independent uh, counsels, the special prosecutors, uh, and that uh, is, I, I think, probably as good a reason not to have completely independent prosecutors as any uh, is, you know, this whole series of, of cases in which uh, special prosecutors, uh, independent counsels have been appointed and go on for literally, in some instances, years uh, trying to find a case, trying to get a case on somebody. Uh, and with no regard at all for the, uh, devote the, 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 the resources, the cost of these things, or the political implications uh, of them, that's the real problem, uh, is where you have that sort of uh, uh, institutionalized uh, independence, uh, uh, not, not the system that we have of U.S. attorneys. So this actually brings us uh, full circle to something that John mentioned, and I wanted to, we can just end up with this since we're out of time. Um, uh, Arnold Burns, who was the Deputy Attorney General in the Reagan administration, wrote within the last year uh, an op-ed in which he suggested a fixed, uh, politically appointed Attorney General, but a fixed term, uh, either like the 10-year term for the FBI director or like the four-year term for the chair of the Fed. Um, why don't we end up with everybody on the panel giving us an idea? Start with Bob. How, how do you react to that? Uh, very negatively. Uh, I, I do have uh, great faith in, uh, in the political system. It doesn't always work properly. We've, we've just seen some instances in which it hasn't. Uh, but uh, uh, here again, insulating uh, that person that serves as the attorney general uh, so that they are not accountable to the electorate large uh, writ, uh, I, think would be, uh, I think would be a grave mistake. Andy? I agree with that. I would I would leave things the way they are now. I don't know why you would want to have a situation where if you had an outstanding attorney general uh, that you would have to remove him for over an arbitrary time limit. Um, I, I, I wouldn't do that. Jamie? Any policymaking position in an administration has to be a political appointee coterminous with the term of the president. For those positions that are term positions like the director of the FBI, uh, and we have also um, seen on occasion um, uh, CIA directors, uh, not at, for a specific term, but overlapping administrations. They are not policymakers. They have very specific jobs to do. And specifically, when you sit around uh, the uh, a deputies committee table, they give their views on the 
on the underlying facts, but they are not participant in the policy debate. So unless you construe what the Attorney General does as in that latter category rather than in the former category of making policy, you cannot have an Attorney General that does not serve at the pleasure of the President. John? I agree. I would also take it away from the FBI director because I think a lot of governmental decisions do involve policy and we want to have a more responsive government to elections. Uh, I think the only hard case is the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Uh, you know, it's, you know, do, do, would we accept taking away the term for the chairman of the Fed if you take the position I think everybody on the panel has? And I think people recognize, though, that having an independent chairman of the Federal Reserve is different somehow. Maybe the money supply is more important than prosecutions. It probably is. I, I think so. And but still, I, I find that hard to reconcile. I mean, I think my position would have to be that the chairman of the Fed can't have a fixed limited term with no real strong removal power either. All right. Well, uh, having momentarily achieved complete unanimity on this panel, <laughs> this seems like a good place to end. Thank you all for coming.